Welcome, everybody, to the show. I am glad to be in, in your earballs, and I am grateful that you have chosen to press play and spend a little bit of your very valuable time with yours truly on today's episode of Trumpet Dynamics. We're going back into the archives to bring to you an episode that was recorded in January of 2017 with the great Rex Richardson. Rex lives in Richmond, Virginia, last I heard. Maybe he's moved since then. But I lived in Raleigh, North Carolina at the time, and I made the trek up I-95. I think it was about a three-hour drive, and we just chewed the fat. It's always great to have an in-person interview. Every chance I get, I I never turn down an opportunity. And uh, Rex did not disappoint uh, in the interview, as you're about to hear. And it has been a minute. It's been about six years since I recorded it, so I don't remember exactly what was talked about, but I do remember it being a really good interview, and you're going to enjoy it. Now, this is my business. I do play trumpet, but this is my business, podcasts. And if you're looking for a way to support the show, I'm not just going to come out and ask for money. I'm not going to just say donate to this, donate to that. I'm I'm not going to do that. But if you do want to support the show financially, the best way to do it is to join my email newsletter. With the newsletter, I do promote things that are for sale. Some things are things that I've created. Other things are uh, businesses with whom I affiliate and sell their products for a commission. But this is how I make my living. Uh, editing podcasts, producing podcasts, and also uh, just selling things that I believe in wholeheartedly to my email list. So, uh, this is not a pitch as much as an invitation. If you want to uh, be a part of the show and support the show, uh, just join the email list. I send an email just about every day. They're fun. I try to keep them light and entertaining. And, oh, by the way, there's a pitch for something at the very end, but I try to keep it, you know, non-invasive, for lack of a better term. But I just want to throw that out there. TrumpetDynamics.com will take you to the place where you can join the email newsletter, and I'd love to have you. And if you choose not to, it's it's okay, because I'm not everybody's cup of tea. I just want to throw that out there and make the uh, make you aware, uh, make the invitation known. So, without any further ado, we've got some fresh content in the queue, and we've also and I'm also going to be releasing a few more archives in the coming weeks. But uh, we've got some cool things coming up. Uh, in the very near future on the podcast. So let's get into my conversation with Rex Richardson. We're going to talk trumpet, man. Cool, man. All right. So I always like to ask, start out each interview with your beginning on the trumpet. And we were actually talking a little bit about this before we started. You are actually going to a little bit of a reunion from your younger days. So I'd like to know yeah. about your first exposure to the trumpet, what got you interested in, in it, and um, let's just go from there. Sure. Well, um, I, I kind of came into the trumpet a bit by accident. I mean, I was uh, always interested in music from the time I was a little child. But then, um, you know, I was an asthmatic kid, and my doctor told my folks when I was about 10 years old, hey, you should play a wind instrument. Yeah. 
And my best buddy at the time played trumpet. So I thought I'd try it out. And the way it po- played out for me, I uh, you, you wouldn't know now to hear my voice, but when I was a young kid, I, I apparently could kind of sing because I did a lot of stuff with church and school choirs. I was, was very active as a singer. And um, I didn't get all that into the trumpet around until my voice started to get messed up. You know, How did it get messed up? Not really sure what happened. Sort of happened. As soon as puberty hit, it just kind of uh, it, it just sort of disintegrated. And um, I remember being in the Honolulu Children's Choir when I was about twelve, and no longer being able to play the, the to sing the second alto parts. And I got thrown out of the group not long after that because I just I just couldn't hit the the notes anymore. You know. And, you lived in Honolulu. Yeah, my dad was in the Coast Guard for a long time, oh. so we were stationed there a couple times in Hawaii. Wow, I got married on Lanikai Beach. Okay, man. On Oahu. Yeah. Yeah, barefoot. Wow, very nice. <laughs> very nice. Great setting for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Oahu's amazing. I didn't appreciate it as much as I would now, of course, at the time, right. being a kid. But then um, I moved to, um, to Northern Virginia, where my folks still live, and really started getting into the trumpet. And, um, had a great teacher, uh, someone a lot of people will know through the National Trumpet Competition, Dennis Edelbrock, who yes. founded that, was yes. my teacher. And, um, man, he was great for me because I was a terrible player when I was 13 and 14, and he just started setting me on, the, on a better path, you know. And the reunion you referred to has to do with a group called the Brass of Peace. It was uh, founded by retired Army Colonel Gilbert Mitchell. And I guess it would have been like 1976 because they're celebrating the 40th anniversary of the founding of the group tomorrow night. And so I joined it maybe in 84, 85 or something. I guess I was a sophomore probably in in high school and played in it my last three years. And um, it was an amazing experience. It was really a very important um part of my my musical upbringing you know so that whole part of the country in terms of growing up as a trumpet player was was amazing you got dc there where per capita they have way more trumpet players probably than anywhere else yeah they have all the military yeah exactly and all like real high level pros Mm -hmm. you know so that was just a great stroke of luck for me um as someone who became very interested in music and the trumpet to be in that area as a high school kid it's funny i just talked to bernie adelstein really who was with he was episode number 99. Hmm. And he had asthma when he was a kid. No kidding. And he had the exact same, uh, like the doctor told him he should play a wind instrument. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> wow. How about that? I'm in pretty good company then, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so Rex and Bernie Adelstein wow. both have both had asthma. Do you still have it? I still have it. Really? You no, know, it's funny. It seemed to have worked initially in, in that I... Um, Within a few years, like in high school, I didn't seem to have any asthma symptoms at all. And then when I got to Chicago, um, I went to college and I started going out and playing in the jazz clubs. This is back in the days where you could smoke in the clubs. And so I was playing in smoke-filled rooms (laughs) several nights a week pretty quickly. And um, man, everything seemed to get jacked up again. Between that and the really... Hardcore Chicago winters we had for a few years in a row. That seemed to sort of reawaken the asthma for me. So it's it's well under control now, but it's never quite gone away since then. You know, Chicago winters. I grew up in Minnesota, oh, and man. Um, we well, I was in I was in the military in Korea, 
I left the military about this time last year, and we lived in Minnesota. So we moved from Korea to Minnesota, and my wife and I just looked at each other like, no. We're going back to North Carolina, because I was stationed here before, and yeah. those winters are just no joke. Man, especially in Minnesota. Minnesota makes <laughs> Chicago like balmy. I mean, it's so hardcore there. I used to, when I lived there, I used to go up there all the time. I mean, oh, yeah. Twin Cities has such an amazing music scene Yeah, that there was always a lot going on. But, man, I always dreaded going up there in January or February. That I remember was, this year, April 15th, it was like 14 degrees in the morning. Yeah. And I just said uh, to my wife, In April. We're not doing this anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's just... <laughs> Yeah, you always, in Minnesota, you always, like, get this um, sort of a ray of hope around March. Yeah. It gets up to about 50 degrees, and then, yeah. you, and then you get a blizzard in the middle of June, and oh, you're man. like, man. That's just wrong. That's just wrong. <laughs> in fact, I'll be going back there in early March, and I'm just hoping for that ray of sunshine kind of weather, because I'm playing the jazz festival at the University of Minnesota, in the Twin Cities, and last time I played it, we lucked out too. It was mm. like almost warm enough to rain. I'll just put it that way, you know. So I'm hoping, I'm, I'm hoping it'll be um, so relatively Den balmy again. You know? Denny Edelbrock, was he like, if you were to think of one teacher from your childhood, would he be the number one influence as a trumpet? I would say overall, probably. Really? I mean, I have um, I had a relatively small number of teachers, but they all had a Great impact in different ways, you know. Worked with Chickwitz um, mm. at Northwestern and worked with Chris Gecker at Aspen. Um, and then uh, I went to back to grad school as a, as a very old grad student. I was like 29 when I went to grad school. Um, and at the time, you know, I didn't even get a music degree initially as an undergrad. I got a degree in anthropology. So when I showed up as a 29-year-old, no longer a kid, you know, <laughs> trying to get a master's degree and I've been touring around the world for uh, for years making my living as a player but I didn't I didn't have a music degree um, so when I showed up at LSU in Baton Rouge to, uh, to work on a master's Jim West knew that what I really needed was um, a lot of help with pedagogy because I, I was very interested in teaching and I had no idea what I did to play the trumpet at that point so he was a, he had a great impact on me as a you know as a pedagogue but overall, right. I would say as a player, Denny probably had the biggest impact. What, yeah. So you met him 13, 14 years old. Is that about what it was? Yeah, a little bit 14, I guess, yeah. What was your, and, and you said that he, like you weren't a very good player at the time. What was um, the first thing that he approached with your playing? What, what was the first thing that he wanted to fix with your playing? The main thing he needed to fix with me was uh, uh, an excessive degree of muscularity. I basically... Tried to muscle everything. Mm -hmm. And so I remember showing him that I could play a G above high C. Um, and it was a horrible sound, and I didn't know enough to know that. Uh, but he recognized it right away. <laughs> and he said, look, we got to, man, you're not using any flexibility at all. But this is a G, like right on top of the staff? Or no, no. I could do that since I was 12 or 13 or really? something. I didn't, yeah, I didn't even know it was a, as soon as my braces came off, I could kind of do that. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't. I couldn't play with a good sound. I no, okay. I couldn't slur from a C to an E in the staff, just to give you some perspective on how bad it was, you know. So he said, you know, we've got to get all the tension out of your hands and your arms and start developing your flexibility. And my range immediately plummeted when I did this because I was it was all 
kind of also went tension, you know. But then um, through using flexibility, everything built back up again, and then I was able to get the other qualities that were missing, I have a, a better sound, a better stamina, and, and more balance in different registers of the instrument, all the things we kind of, you know, tr- really trying to develop uh, in terms of our fundamentals. Just going for that more of a natural approach to, like, take, take the uh, more of a holistic approach to, to playing. Yeah, exactly, because I, I wasn't even all that interested in being a, a, a high note player. I mean, I've never really been that. Um, so at the time, that's kind of all I could do in terms of what my chops would, would allow for. So, um, But my heroes, even at that point, are already like you know, people like Maurice Andre and Winton had just come out with his first couple records at that point. You know, So I was... Uh, listening to players who could do all kinds of things I couldn't do, but I was stuck in this this one mode. So Danny was really um, tremendously helpful in getting me to find that balance in my playing. So if you're at 13 and 14 and you can hit a double G, I bet the other yeah. kids in the band were like, "Wow, Rex, <clears throat> amazing." Well, I'm not how, sure it's how good it sounded, man. I don't think it was all that no, impressive. But, but if you're if you're 12 and 13, you don't care how good it sounds. You just know. This is this is phenomenal. No no one else can play this high. I, I guess. I mean, I, I <laughs> if that was a thrill, I don't remember that. I just remember, I remember the look on Denny's face when I played it, and his, his response to how, how bad it sounded. He's like, "Okay, we got some work to do here." And <laughs> I found it useful initially on the marching band field, but uh, not much besides that, you know. So right off the bat, it was a matter of trying to, to reinvent and re- Real rebuild cheap what thrill. I was doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you said that it, it affected your uh, trumpet abilities. So how like how did it affect? Did your stamina go down? Did you, you said your range went down? Um, yeah. in, what were what were the initial uh, physical reactions, and then how did it develop over time? Well, the initial physical reaction was that I I just sort of had to um, completely change my orientation from one which was all about pulling and and you know this happens a lot i think particularly with young males in their early teens we feel like we want to muscle everything and trumpet yeah. lent itself very uh easily to that is as big a mistake as i was so i i had to um you know denny had me you know playing on the arbins book all these kinds of tricks to try to learn to play without actually using my hands gripping the instrument as well as um um various other tricks getting me to relax my hands and basically just let go of the horn so initially um everything kind of disintegrated but eventually as i you know i was very assiduous about the flexibility exercises he gave me very simple exercises and they seemed to make a a big impact in a pretty short amount of time on my plane i mean i went i remember from not being able to slur from a c to an e early my freshman year to being able to do a lip trill on high F uh, a year later as a sophomore, all because of these flexibility exercises and getting the yeah the, well the muscle out of it, you know. Man, it's interesting to wonder what would have happened if you didn't have that uh, that intervention from Dan. yeah with another teacher, man. I might might not have figured out how to play, you know. This other okay, so this colonel. He retired. Was he like an army band colonel? 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, and you were telling me some of the names, uh, some I don't know, but I'm sure people watching this know Jeff Work from right. in the is it Oregon or Portland, Oregon right. Symphony, Oregon Symphony, yeah. And um, man, all these superstars now. You were all in this sort of all-star brass band. <laughs> yeah, there were some some. Um, I mean, I remember when I was in it, I was just thrilled to be playing with people like like these guys and. There's like Alan Meek, who's a trombonist, who I believe has been principal in the Singapore Symphony for a long time. And um, Scott Weiss, who's been uh, director of bands at University of South Carolina for a while and was at Indiana University. And um, he was a tremendous trumpet player. Scott Jones is now a director of bands at uh, Ohio State, I think. He was another trumpet player. And I forget the lady's name, who's principal horn in the Philadelphia Orchestra, but she she's an alum. So... Um, a lot of great folks came through that group, and it was, you know, as we mentioned, being in that area was a, a tremendous resource for young brass players because the per capita number of brass uh, players at the professional level in that city, in that whole area, metropolitan area, is way higher than probably anywhere else, maybe in, in the world, because of all the professional service bands there. So I didn't realize how lucky I was until years later, you know, but <clears throat> everyone had a private teacher, and everyone was kind of hardcore, and all the Band programs were fairly serious up there, so it was it ended up being a very, very uh, fortunate place to to try to pursue music. So, degree in anthropology. Yeah. What does someone uh, think they're going to achieve with a degree in anthropology? Probably about the same they might achieve with a degree in music performance. <laughs> I think <laughs> it's about as marketable. I would say. Um, no, I um I I went to Northwestern. As a trumpet major, but um, to be honest, I, I wasn't very happy with um, what was happening there at the time. Um, I really enjoyed studying with with Mr. Chikowicz. He was um, he was what everyone said he was. He was a great man and a great teacher. He was just kind of tired by the time I got there. I got yeah. there late in his career. He was he was you know kind of winding down, and so he was team teaching, and I wasn't real happy with the the other teachers I was working with at the time, and other elements of the music program. And I felt like I needed to kind of get out in order to, ironically, in order to sort of save my career. And so at the start of my sophomore year, I remember I got got to um, um, play with Civic Orchestra of Chicago that year. And I, after that audition, which was right around, I think, the start of the semester I just I dropped out of the music school and um just kind of worked on my own you know started going to jam sessions and through a lot of luck started getting into the the studio scene that was there at the time and learned to play jazz initially just from going to jam sessions and playing badly and asking questions about how to get better and there were a few people who were really kind to me and helpful like Brad Good who's a great uh, uh a wonderful trumpet player who now teaches uh, in Colorado, but he was uh, one of the main guys on the Chicago scene at the time. I got a few lessons from Brad, and um, just all the guys I play with kind of became teachers for me, you know. But yeah, that's why I I, I ended up um, choosing anthropology. I think it was something that was always interesting to me, but I felt like I'm at a good school. I should get a degree. I, I had considered trying to transfer to another school, but I decided to stay in Chicago. I felt like I was really kind of growing up musically there. And um, 
stuck around for a few more years before I uh, left for New York. Well, it's interesting because you travel the world now. Yeah. And you said that you traveled the world in, in your 20s, so that's like a study of anthropology, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. in its own right. Sure, absolutely. I mean, it was. Um, it did definitely seem to color my experience with different cultures because right off the bat in the 90s, um, I was exposed to some of the the most um, disparate cultures from our own. Like at Rhythm and Brass is a group I play with since 1995, and we toured Saudi Arabia three times in the 90s. It was all before 9-11. Yeah, Things yeah, got yeah. really rough with that relationship, but... Um, it was it was fascinating and bizarre and also you know kind of fantastic you know to have the exposure to that part of the world and yeah so everything a lot of my exposure to different groups of people and 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 different cultures around the world has been uh, viewed through that lens of having studied anthropology as an undergrad. It's it's interesting how um, previous experiences. They come into play once you really find your groove, like you really find what you're sort of discover what you're meant to do. And all of a sudden, all of these things that you've done that until that point you thought were sort of irrelevant, all of a sudden they become relevant and you you find ways that they can um, that they contribute to what you're doing. Yeah, that's true. So you're traveling the world with rhythm and brass. Is this before LSU? Yes, this uh, started in 95, yep. and um, when I was still living in Chicago, and then I went to, um, I left New York in 97, and started touring with Joe Henderson there, uh, um, great jazz saxophonist. So at the time, that was relatively short-lived because Joe was in bad health, and he only toured through about August of 98. So for that period of uh, almost a year or so, I guess I was touring with both groups and just kind of hoping to avoid conflict, you know, and living in New York, but not really on the scene because of how much I was traveling, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, <clears throat> yeah, all of that was before I decided to try to go back uh, to grad school to try to get uh, an actual music degree. Well, what what uh, made you decide to pursue a degree? Like you're already successful in certain respects. What uh, what was the deciding factor that said, I'm 29, I need to get a degree? What, tell me about that. Well, the whole, it all was tied with the idea of moving to Baton Rouge in the first place. Okay. Um, the, the, the weird thing, the weirdest chapter of my life, maybe in some ways, is moving to Baton Rouge from New York City because of a girl. All right. <laughs> Not the one I ended up marrying. I married uh, someone else uh, two and a half years ago. Everything's good. She hasn't killed me yet, so I figured this is this is uh, it's working out well. <laughs> but um, I did get engaged uh, to, to to someone else while I was in Baton Rouge, and but I moved there feeling like you know maybe it was time for me to have a little more stability in my life. Uh, the touring was great, but it was you know the chaos that surrounds all that. I mean, it'd be one month of all this money coming in the next month would be nothing. Um, And trying to have something that felt like a real life and felt like any kind of a base, I sort of realized how difficult it was if all I had was a touring income. So I said, you know, I've always enjoyed teaching. It'd be great to be able to do maybe some teaching at the college level. I'm not going to get to do that with a bachelor's degree in anthropology. So Not teaching music. No. 
or not even you could, the ball. You could teach yeah. someone how to sweep a broom. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> so you make this decision, you're going to go to LSU. Right. And uh, <clears throat> is, is for, um, to improve your playing or as far as being a musician, what was, how did that factor uh, in? No, it didn't, it didn't really factor in at all as a uh, kind of knew how to play. But that is always things improve. I mean, I'm now in 47. I'm still working in terms of study specifically. That wasn't really the goal. It was about getting a degree and trying to, to figure out. I didn't know much about what I did to play because I hadn't had any real lessons since I was 19 at that point. So I was playing. So what's happening physically, <clears throat> how it all works. That was a big gap as a teacher. That's maybe not my, my strongest point, but it's much better now than it was then when I, when I entered grad school. And so um, I started a master's degree and turned, um, on the jazz side to do some jazz teaching while earning a classical degree. Um, supervisor, graduate supervisor came in and said, man, we've got, there's more money can basically triple your assistantship. It's like a doctor, man. I never thought about doing that because I, I was still touring at the time, and that was kind of my main income and just doing some adjunct teaching down there. I said, "Sure, um, I'm going to finish it, man." And and so the way it played out was kind of brutal because I did in '99, in fall of '99, it was APD, and so two and a half years to get a master's and a doctorate. Wow, it's bad. I mean, no sleep, eating badly. No exercise. Uh, I would not recommend it to anyone either. So, um, and then I uh, finally took it. And it wasn't until the spring semester 2006 where I was like, man, I, I haven't finished my to do, the, put the final paper together and did a lecture recital and finished the doctorate. On my short list. Anyway. I, I, <laughs> I appreciate that greatly. <laughs> I don't think I'd be on my own short list. Um, you know, I, I, I've got. So many heroes over the day. Uh, Shortlist favorite, uh, Giolano Sommerhalder. I don't know if you know Giolano. He's maybe 30 now, I think. And we were together at the Australasian um, Brass Academy. No, Australasian Trumpet Academy with John Foster, who's another phenomenal period instrument, trumpet player, and really one of the best in the world. And so with Giolano and me and uh, Joel Brennan, another wonderful player who's an American teacher in Australia, but Giolano, a concerto by orchestra for a couple of years, he got it. I mean, he was maybe 24, 25 or something when he got that in a Munich competition when he was like 17. I mean, just absolute phenomenon. But the musicianship just really kind of blew me away. A lot of inspiration for practice. Turned out to be a heck of a nice guy, too. I feel like a, a you know, person I'd say is one of my you know, new favorite players. On the jazz side, you know uh, Till Berner for, for a long time, but we got to hang out together at the 2015 ITG. We played the final concert together, and and I saw him do another set. And man, just a many maybe almost sort of a Germany's um, Chris Bode in a way, American Idol sure. as a judge, and he sings a little bit, plays a little keyboard. Man, he played B R B R O umlaut N N E R Berner. Cool. But he plays trumpet hardcore. Like, the two of my biggest jazz heroes are they're probably Woody and Freddie, you know. Guys I did my dissertation on, actually. So um, so those are two two guys I've been introduced to. Uh, from history, what, who is, like, uh, someone that maybe we haven't heard of here in 2000? 
like one of the one of the top guys. I mean, there is a musician certainly I can mention who comes. Okay, a musician who comes yeah. to mind who's been a huge influence on them. Who she was not a trumpet player, but she was a singer named Jan Digatani, and she taught at Eastman, and she's a very famous pupil. Um, Don Upshaw was one of her. When I was studying there, and I remember being just kind of blown away by the, the, the tone color of her voice and the phrasing, and and it's amazing, James. I was I was just I'd still to this day of all the been crazy. I've loved Mahler since I was fourteen, all this, but this is still part of my favorite CD in my collection. Wow. I always go back to it was like, man, if I could ever play a phrase like this, I will have done something good. <laughs> I will have done something. <laughs> Something I still haven't done at this point in my life, I think, you know, any singer. As far as trumpet players go, I, I mean, there are always folks that seem to come, seem to be as well-known at the moment, you know. But I, I, I'm trying to think of someone who I feel like I know. Is there anyone's really coming to mind for that? You that's know? all right. Or is he sort of local heroes you meet when he's like, man, this this guy. We've got a couple of comments from Facebook. Arthur Brand. Yeah. Oh, says, yeah. Hey, Rex, great to see you. Hey, Arthur. Proud of you, Rex, yeah. your mom and dad. That is my dad. Oh, all right. Ben Rivas says, hey, Rex, Merry Christmas to you both. I'm honored. I would love to travel the world performing similar to Rex and a lot of my idols. And just wondering his advice as to how I could get myself out there more to be seen. How did you become as big as you are today? Oh, man, great great to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in. Um, you know, and is to find, figure out what's going to be a sort of our, our own happy niche. If you think of what different trumpet players are doing, there's some trumpet players who get called to work very sick, who get called because they have something very... Um, specific and personal to offer, you know. Um, you get take someone like Wayne Bergeron. He's a guy who kind of fo- falls into both categories where he call Wayne to play. Or if you want what he offers very specifically in terms of his sound. I've kind of felt like I was happier more on that, you know, the, on the, the, the per side. I and mean, I did a lot of freelancing and working as a studio player, as an orchestral and chamber. I was happiest kind of finding my own personal stamp on the music. So a way that worked, um, helping to get new works written that were kind of uh, built around my own approach to the instrument. In my case, I feel like, uh, you know, whatever success I've had has been about, I want to hear what I want to, what I want to do personally to, to some degree, you know. Um, so a, a, a lot of it has to do with, you know, what do you have to offer personally? What's your own stamp on it? You can, you know, you may be happier freelancing, um, playing in bands, uh, um, but that's something that I've left all behind. I don't even play gigs anymore. I mean, uh, you know, basically, I um, I look, I, I perform as a soloist now. On occasion, I do play with a brass band. Really narrow, and I found that if I was going to show up and sound good doing what I was doing, I had to start to maybe push aside some of the other things that I could be trying to do and to present. <clears throat> so I think that's key, Ben, is figure out what's going to make you happy and, and if amp on the music, then figure out what, what it is you have to offer. Because my big influences, the first guys I was listening to were like Maurice Andre, <clears throat> Winton, and Freddie Hubbard, and Rafael Mendez, you know. I could play like Rex Richardson at a high level, hopefully, and that could be something to do. Hopefully no one can play Rex Richardson as well as Rex Richardson can. 
you know, it, that's the kind of thing. It's like, you know, becoming the best Ben v- Beavis that, that could exist, you know, goal in terms of finding your, your perfect niche in the business. Yeah, you just have to be yourself. Uh, Dublin, he's in Dublin. Hey, Stephen. Stephen Ryan says, one of the world's best. All right. All right, you know, speaking of niching, how are we doing on time? Uh, we're cool, I think. Okay. It's about quarter of. We're going to about noon. Is that the... Yeah, about uh, that. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, um, something that I noticed, I guess I noticed a Facebook article about you commissioning four new people who I featured on this podcast, and he was telling me his story. He's a former trumpeter. Right. And he, uh, he came into his own. He sort of discovered a niche. Yeah. Uh, as a composer, he just decided he, he he's like a full-time composer, world-class composer. Yeah. And because um, I've heard some kids, they decide I'm, and you listen to their stuff. It's like, what in the, <laughs> what, 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 are, what is this? But Jim is, is great. Tell me about um, the last 12, 24 months. Okay. Well, um, I should point out that uh, these four concertos that were commissioned together with this one large grant, I, I do want to talk about Jim briefly anyway, sure. because Really, to this point, the most second concerto. Mm-hmm. And as you know, Jim likes puns and nicknames, so he calls it Rex Dream. Yep. That's, and, um, yeah, Jim is a figure very much to be admired. He's uh, talking about finding your own niche, as you mentioned. I mean, yeah. he, um, he's doing it in a way that no one else does. And, and <clears throat> I think one of the problems is they're so concerned with the stamp of legitimacy that they're not necessarily clear. You know, whether you're a player or a writer, I think one of the most important things you have to ask yourself is, it's very natural for all of us, I think, when we're very young to be a little bit self-centered when we're figuring out our, our concept, and and it has to be something that makes you happy. But eventually, you got to say, well, you know, who are this for? And um, eventually, I realized, man, if, if I'm not, you know, if I walk, you know, who were who engaged with what I was doing and who actually, then I don't think I really su- succeeded. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I horrible things like that when I was a kid, you know, and then more broadly, how well did I feel like I play later than that? And st- I started to realize, man, you stop worrying about that. Practice hard, go out and play the music. And if people have an ex- your, your your question, um, these four concertos were a big thrill for us in the music department because it's uh, at VCU because it's never been given to an entirely artistic endeavor before. I've been speaking pretty closely with a few composers about getting something written for a while. And um, first of all, you know, a hero to all of us, uh, certainly one of mine since I was about 15. <clears throat> but I've had the fortune of, in addition to still being a huge hero of mine, like a great friend as well. And he was kind enough to write a piece. Um, um, Anthony Plogue, who's a... Uh, Someone else who most of us we know his music very well, very well. And of course, he was a wonderful trumpet player in his day. Um, David Sampson, who uh, people who are fans of the American Brass Quintet will probably know his music. He's done a lot of music for them and for um, for Ray Mace. Um, <clears throat> he wrote a double concerto for me and for Joe Alessi. A British composer named Andy Scott, who is a wonderful writer who does a lot for an ensemble and brass band, and. He's a jazz saxophonist and classical saxophonist as well as a great composer. So he was someone who, knowing my work as a jazz player, was uh, very keen to sort of integrate both sides of the language in, a, in, in his writing. 
So, yeah, in terms of working with these composers and trying to, you know, help get more pieces uh, contributed to the trumpet repertoire, I mean, that's been just a, a thrill, you know. Yeah. One cool thing about that process with these four concertos is that each composer took a different approach in terms of, well, how, you know, who's going to play this piece, you know. I feel like Tony Plo just wrote a great all-around concerto that is accessible to many players at different levels of development. <clears throat> Alan Bizzuti wrote a piece. He knows my playing very well, but he, he wrote something basically for him, but something he figured I could actually handle too. <laughs> so it's it's challenging, but it's uh, manageable, barely. Um, and then uh, Andy Scott wrote very much for, for me. He really kind of tailored it in terms of how I kind of approached the instrument. He worked in multiphonics and <clears throat> circular breathing, I, I think. I can't put circular breathing in there. But a few other things that are maybe not as uh, typical into the technique. David Sampson basically wrote his language, you know. He, he, he did what he what he does and wrote this wonderful large-scale three-member concerto for uh, trumpet and trombone. That's awesome. You know, the, yeah. the Haydn concerto is 200 years old and it's still one of the staples of any freshman in college. And it'd be cool to see, we're, we're not going to see it, but 200 years from now, one of these concertos would wouldn't that be something if 200 years from now, if uh, kids in the Univer University of Mars or wherever <laughs> the next place to co yeah. colonize, they're uh, playing the Rextreme Concerto, you know, wouldn't that be something? I would love that, man. That would be amazing. <laughs> I mean, I'm hoping these pieces will find their way into the standard repertoire. They're all great pieces, mm -hmm. and um, they're all worth playing and worth being heard, I think. That's cool to be a part of history. And uh, one thing I like about doing this podcast is um, sort of reliving the history of the trumpet. It's really cool. So yeah. we're going to say a couple of things from Facebook, and then I have one question, and okay. we're running short on time here. So right. Ben Beavis says, great advice. Thank you. Allison Kaiser says, ah. hello. Thanks. Hi, Allison. Thanks for teaching me to sound like myself, she says. Oh, that's awfully cool. Thank you. And then uh, that's, that's all for Facebook for now, but um, this last question is a doozy. Okay. And to, to, to be fair, this is my first time ever asking this question. Of All right. So this is experimental, so it's a nice way of saying we'll see how this goes. Okay. Let's imagine yourself, you are on stage, it can be any situation, but you're on stage and the audience is on its feet. They are cheering wildly. They don't want any more, and they don't want any less. Everything is just perfect. What have you just done? Mm. What an awesome question. The best way to answer that is to say that I've I've channeled it. I've succeeded in, in channeling... The, the music, you know, being kind of the vehicle for the music um, in the right way. It's like, um, it makes me think of a wonderful quote by Tom Harrell, who's um, another one of my favorite living jazz trumpet players. And, you know, I heard an interview of Tom 
years and years ago. And it's not really easy for him to speak because he's, he's medicated because of the schizophrenia he suffers from. So every word he says is kind of heavy just because of that, because it's a little bit labored. But I remember him being um, asked something along the lines of, you know, what is this all about for you? Why do you do this? You know, and he says, um, you know, when I succeed, essentially, um, I am, I, I am being the best vehicle for the music that I can be, because then I am rewarded by being allowed to experience beauty. Mm. And I was like, wow, that's a, it's hard to, to put into words what we do, but I think that's as, as close as I've heard, you know. And I, I think it it comes down, down to that, you know. I mean, when, when you're on stage and everything goes well, it's so many so many factors come into play. It's the, the vibe you have, the vibe of the audience, the vibe of the orchestra or, or band, or whoever, whoever you're playing with, <clears throat> your appearance, your demeanor, the way the music goes, the piece you're playing... All these things kind of come together and, and there's, you know, you have the experience you're, you're describing, then it's a very, it's an incredible combination of elements, I think, that makes us happy we're alive, at least, for, for the moment. Not that we're not happy we're alive most of the time, but you know what I mean? It's sort of a, this sort of heightened experience that reminds you of like, man, this is, this is what it's all about, man, this is why I'm here is to be able to participate, to be able to facilitate that kind of experience for a large group of people. And in the meantime, I'm rewarded by being allowed to experience the, the beauty of that moment. Well said. That's a good experiment. I think I'll keep it. <laughs> That's a great question, man. You should. You should keep that. That's a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. If you or someone you know has a dynamic story you think should be shared on this show, please email us at podcast at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com and to subscribe to James Newcomb's email newsletter, visit trumpetdynamics.com or jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. Thank you for listening and we'll be in your earball soon.